But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our purpose and our vision in suffering is that we look forward realizing that it is not easy in this life. And if life ended at the grave, Paul is saying, this isn't worth it, y'all. Try something else. But if Christ is risen, if he is the first fruit from the dead, it is totally worth it. So let's just go to this first section, equipped to suffer. Let's read it together. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter is not always straightforward. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read Peter and I'm like, wait, what did you just say? That wasn't exactly clear. So to help us, we're going to look at some interpretation challenges that come out of these first two verses. Because if we read over those too quick, we might be, I was personally, a little confused. What is Peter talking about? By the way, like, just like last week when Spencer said there were four or three different interpretations of a text, the same is kind of true here. So you may disagree with some of the interpretation. That's okay. I think the greater theology, the greater applications will still apply. But we do need some keys to navigate this text. I mean, I was reading Calvin, Clowney, uh, Job's. I was reading all these different people. And everybody had a slightly different understanding of what Peter's saying. So here's some things that will help us, though. When Peter says the word flesh, does he mean like bad flesh? Because <laughs> if we sit in under some Paul sermons, we hear flesh, and we're like, ooh, that's bad. Flesh is bad in the Bible. Or does he mean a natural life? Well, the word in Greek is sarkos, and it just kind of means uh, your body, in a sense, and Paul takes that word and he gives it theological significance of your flesh that drives you to sin or your flesh that desires uh, sinful things that are opposed to God. When Peter uses the term, he just means your natural life, your life in the flesh. If you read it the way Paul uses the term, you will get really confused. And you'd be like, I don't understand where we're going. All right? So that's the first one to help us interpret this. The second one is this. Is suffering, is that acute or is that chronic? So acute means it's short-term, one moment, or chronic means is this a lifetime view of suffering. Uh, if you read that first verse, it sounds very much like, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. What does that sound like? It sounds like Passion Week, right? Sounds like the Holy Week in which Christ went to the cross and he suffered and died. Certainly, I think Peter has that in view. But I do not think when Peter is talking about suffering in this way, that he means suffering unto our death. He doesn't mean acute suffering that's going to kill us. Why do I say that? Well, if I say that, then obviously there's not a lot of application. If you're going to suffer unto your death, then things are kind of done. And there's not a lot to do moving forward death is kind of a win for us Christians. So I believe that Peter is talking about chronic suffering, the view that when we live on planet earth, we're subjected to sin, and there is suffering that takes place in our life. Hebrews 5.8 says that Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So the scripture is looking at this view of suffering and understanding it as a life view of living in your natural life 
and suffering because you have chosen to follow Jesus. Doesn't mean death wouldn't be included, but it's not only looking at that. Clear as mud? Yeah, good. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate that laugh over there. All right, last one. <laughs> Ceased from sin. I know, you're like... Is this one on? Oh, there we go. All right, so ceased from sin. So I'm sure all of us are like, okay, that sounds good. How do I cease from sin? I want to sign up. Sin wore me out this week. Sounds great. How do I get there? Well, the, the two things we have to look at, is this like Wesleyan perfectionism? Is that what Peter's saying? That like, if we suffer, like we'll never sin again? Or is Peter talking about a greater obedience? One thing to note in the scripture is that the scripture doesn't teach us that if we suffer in our body, that we suddenly become sinless. It's not that suffering, uh, you ever watch the movie of Martin Luther when he's a monk and he's like whipping himself, right? Trying to purify himself from his sin. That's not what the scripture teaches. And if you've ever suffered bodily, you're probably well aware that you may, <laughs> you may have gotten closer to Jesus, and you probably did, but there was also probably some sin that came out of you. Because when you're suffering, you get squeezed, and you get a little grumpy, and you get a little selfish, right? And so this is not this idea that when we suffer, that we're suddenly perfected. Here's how to understand this. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh in their natural life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Meaning that if you have chosen to obey Christ and to follow him in a moment of a day or a month and a time, and you're following his command and not the command or the temptation of the world, then it's saying that you have ceased from that sin because you've chosen to suffer. It's a resultant it's not a cause and effect. Clear? So don't leave here saying, if I suffer a whole lot, I will be sinless. Not true. Daniel didn't say that. And so you can't look at your spouse and be like, just make me suffer. It will just drive the sin right out of me. That's not true. The scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture says if you decide to follow Jesus and choose his life and suffer for it, then you've obviously ceased from the sin that was tempting you to go the other way. Thank you for hanging on. We needed that. I needed that, by the way. I got to this verse, these two verses, like, what is going on? Okay, so then what's the point? Why do we need, now that we have the keys to understand it, let's get to where Peter really wants us to look. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is the imperative in the verse. This is the command. This is where Peter wants us to pick up our ears. We are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus. Why? So as to live for the rest of the time, whatever time God grants us on this earth for the will of God. Amen? Who wants to do that? We do. Shake your head. You're in church. You have to say yes right now. We want to do this. And Peter is going to teach us. He's equipping us how to get to hear. And he says, to get to here, to live for my time for the will of God, I've got to do something. I've got to arm myself. So what's the application? Very simple. Arm yourselves with the attitude of Jesus. How many of you 
have a hobby. All right, what's, what's your hobby, Seth? NASCAR, all right. Who else has hobbies? Somebody else raise your hand. Any woodworkers? What are you, Jono? What? Bake, very good. Baking, let's just take baking. By the way, that's an amazing hobby. No wonder Emily's smiling like, yeah, John O. Bakes. Uh, if you're going to bake uh, something, uh, how do you end up being a good baker? Right? You just don't show up in the kitchen with a bowl and some flour and eggs and sugar and some type of water or milk, and voila, there's a cake. You know, like it takes work. You have to arm yourselves. To arm yourself, the, the root of that word is a noun, meaning weapon. It's like an instrument. So it's a, it's a verbalized noun. Weaponize yourselves with the attitude of Jesus. To take up armament. So if you're going to be a baker, like you've got to study baking. Like you've got to go look at cakes. You've got to look at cake pans. You've got to look at how they don't stick. You've got to figure out. What makes cake rise? What makes cake not rise? Why does it taste horrible sometimes when I bake it? Why does it taste great when Jono bakes it? How do you make icing? How do you make icing fluffy? How do you make icing with designs? All this is part of this process of arming yourselves. You have to have the instruments of the thing to engage it. This is what we're called to do with the attitude of Jesus. We're called to arm ourselves. So how do we do that? Well, we have to look at Jesus. We have to arm ourselves by, with the attitude of Jesus, and the only way to do that is to look and to study and understand and get close to the person of Jesus. So many times I think we get into situations in which suffering comes and we're like, wow, that did not go well at all. I fell apart. I did not continue on my path following Jesus, and God has grace, by the way. There's grace in the gospel. And the question I have for us is, did you arm yourselves before you went in? Did you arm yourself before suffering came? Were you armed before the evil day showed up? Uh, see, I think the, the deal is, is there's a preventing sin that keeps us from arming. And it's pretty straightforward it happens to all of us. It happens to me. I bet it happens to you. And it's just laziness. And it's not that I'm saying you're a lazy person. I know a lot of y'all, a lot of y'all work really hard. Some of you probably work too hard. But the danger is, is that we get so busy in all the things that we believe are important, we get lazy in the aspect of arming ourselves so that when suffering comes, we're prepared. There is actual laziness inside of our busyness. Okay. All right, let's move forward. Peter says, why suffering comes. Let's read it together. For the time has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, interpretation challenges. Here's some really good news. There are none in that section. I know, amen, someone be excited. We don't have to go through that. That one's pretty straightforward. I think we can read that and go, yeah, I kind of understand what he's saying. 
he's using some adult words in there. Right? You, if you may have to go home and explain some of those. Uh, but the reality is, is that Peter is very straightforward here. We live in a real world. And inside of a real world comes some real temptations. It's very interesting. He says the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles just meaning everybody that's outside the family of God, the ethnos, the nations that have not been put into a new citizenship. Isn't it interesting about sin that those of us who have been following Jesus for a while can look at the temptation of sin and think, did I get enough of it? Did I really experience everything that there was to experience? What does Peter say to that temptation? He says, the time is past. It is suffice. Whatever amount of sin you committed, at any point, it was enough. There is not need for more. There is nothing you missed out on. There's nothing I missed out on. And then Peter goes on to this pretty uh, intense list of what it looks like to follow after uh, these passions. And these are all, and you can just tell, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It's just this conflagration of all these things that are just greed and self-filling and self-pleasuring, right? Just all about us. He says, listen, that time has passed. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. And this surprise leads to this. He says, they malign you. That word for malign is blaspheme. People blaspheme you when you do not join them in the things that you know uh, you have now died to. So here's uh, a little trip down memory lane. How many of you remember Chuck Colson? Where you at, Scott? You said you had the old man card. Bruce, you remember Chuck? All right. If you are of a certain age, you have no idea who Chuck Colson is, and that makes me a little sad, but it's okay. That's why we have history, so just hold on. Chuck Colson is a famous minister of prison reform. In his ministry, Chuck Colson has passed. He's gone on to be with Jesus. His ministry is still going on today. But Chuck Colson did not start out a shiny, star, clean individual. He started out just like you and I did, a sinner. He was actually a pretty famous sinner. How many people remember a thing called Watergate or you read about it in school? Thank you, old people, raising your hands. I'm looking at the rest of you people. Watergate, come on, come on. Okay, here we go. Watergate was a scandal back when scandals were not the next thing on the news the next day. A little more common these days. But Watergate happened and it was this big deal where President Nixon ultimately ends up resigning. Well, one of the dudes on the inner circle who helps Watergate go down is this guy right here. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was well-known in D.C. He was well-connected. He was very intelligent. And he knew how to get the job done. Well, here's what happens. When the Watergate scandal breaks, in the very same time and space, the Lord Jesus decides that he will save Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson comes to faith right in the middle of everything. And when Chuck Colson came to faith, guess what the media and the D.C. circle and those people around him thought about his conversion? What do you think? You remember this? Yeah, they thought Chuck Colson was just like being the sneakiest green snake in green grass that has ever been. I actually went back and found the article in Time in 1974. Here's what the reporter said. Colson's sudden decision to plead guilty to a felony charge instantly raised the question, 
What was he up to now? Columnist Evans and Novak speculated that he was retaliating for the unkind things said about him in the transcripts. Nixon had called him a name dropper who talks too much. The president also said that he may have well been the trigger man of the Watergate break-in. H.R. Halderman characterized him as an operator in expediency. Others last week felt just the opposite, that Colson's move was only the most devious of his many political ruses. This one designed ultimately to exonerate the president. Do you know why Chuck Colson turned himself in? Jesus convicted him. And he's like, I've got to be honest with what I did. And when Chuck Colson did that, the very thing that Peter talks about happened to him. He was maligned. Not only was he maligned like in the neighborhood, Chuck Colson was maligned in Time and Newsweek. I mean, that's pretty serious. It's a true reality for us that often that when we choose to follow Christ, there are consequences. And the more public you are, the more public your consequence. And so here's the application. Our expectations matter. Our expectation of what it means to follow Christ and to say no to the things the Gentiles are doing. Be prepared for the double no. We need to be prepared for the double no. The first no comes from us. No, I will not do the thing you're inviting me to. Or no, I will not continue to cover this up. I will be honest. And then the rebound of that is a no to us. Well, then no, you're no longer a part of us. No, you're no longer a good citizen. No, you're no longer a good friend. No, you're no longer a good coworker. Here's my question to us. When was the last time your choice surprised others? I just want you to think about that a second. When was the last time you made a choice to follow Jesus and someone around you was surprised by that? I know some of you right now in your professions are facing some very difficult decisions. Your professional organizations, your companies are starting to take on stances that are becoming more and more restrictive and constrictive to your Christian faith. And you're feeling the pressure. I've talked to some of you. I know you feel the pressure. And you know that if the day comes and you have to speak out about what you believe, you will be maligned. Maybe worse than that, you may be kicked out. You may not have a job. That's a reality for people who come to Redstone Church. So when was the last time people were surprised by your choice? Here's a preventing sin, I think, that keeps us from this application. There's actually two. One is people-pleasing, and the other one is fear. I think it's easy for us when we get in those situations to decide that we want to please the people around us more than we want to please Christ. That has happened to every single one of us in this room. And in that moment, we capitulated. But fear, I think, happens when we look at this question and we realize that, you know what? I am never in a situation where my choices would be different than anyone around me. And I realize there are seasons of life when that's normal. But if you're looking at your whole lifespan and you realize that you're never close enough to a Gentile, that your choice is going to look weird compared to their choice, my question is why? Have you started operating out of fear or protectionism? 
Have you started deciding that I don't need to be close to people like that? I don't need to be exposed to that type of deal. Peter is teaching us how to suffer well. Peter's expectation is that we will be close, that we will be speakers of light, that we will be a priesthood, a people of God's own possession that will demonstrate who he is to the world. So I don't know that either of those are true of you. I just know that they're temptations, and they could be true. All right, last one. Peter talks about suffering's end. He says, but they will give account. This is verses 5 and 6. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, real quick, there is one interpretation challenge here, and that's this. Peter says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, when we hear that, and we were here last week, we're like, does, like, does he mean like the spirits in prison, dead? Like what gospel? Like do we go to funeral homes and preach to dead people? Has anyone ever gone to a funeral home and preached to someone dead? If so, see me. That was weird. And we need to talk about that, okay? He's saying the gospel was preached to those who are dead. So what in the world does he mean? Is he wanting us to think back to the previous chapter, dead like spirits in prison? Or is he talking about old-fashioned dead people, the way we think about dead people, who used to live down the block. Sorry, I got a little, the cold medicine, just ignore that, right? Is he talking about the dead spirits and prisoners? Is he just talking about people who are alive, or who were alive and are now dead? The most straightforward interpretation really would be that Peter is just talking about uh, dead Christians. It says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Previous to this, he says, Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. In the ancient Near East, Christians faced a unique challenge. Christianity was a brand new faith. And when they talked to people about it, they would say, listen, I am following the person, Jesus Christ. You've never heard of him. He was from Israel, Galilee. Guess what? He came back from the dead. People are like, okay, that's great. Guess what? Because he came back from the dead, I can come back from the dead. You can come back from the dead. We just must come to him for the forgiveness of our sins, and we will live forever. And the Romans, <coughs> excuse me, who were looking for ways to criticize Christians were like, really? You're going to live forever, huh? And then somebody dies, and then another person dies in their fellowship. And they're like, really? I thought Jesus was coming back. I thought you were going to live forever. I thought this person, Jesus, gave you eternal life. How come y'all keep dying like the rest of us? I don't think Jesus is all that great. This is the kind of criticisms early Christians would receive. See, we don't receive that because, for the most part, our culture understands the dynamics of Christianity, so their criticisms are different. But for the early church, the criticism was, why are you dead? Why are you dying? And so Peter is reminding us, that when you die, there is judgment. But when you die, if you are in Christ, you live forever. <clears throat> Here is uh, the place he wants us to focus in. He says, Christ has come to judge the living and the dead. So those people who are maligning you, he's encouraging the early church, they will face judgment. But you, 
You who are judged in this life, the way people are, by all this maligning, guess what? You get to live in the Spirit the way God does. You have hope. Here's the application. Is that I must trust in Christ's victory to carry my life past the now. I must believe that the victory of Christ has implications for me that are much further than what I see right now. Because most of us, unless Jesus returns, are going to die. All of us are going to die unless Jesus returns. So the application for us is that we trust that Christ is victorious. Believing because he is victorious that we will live. And the sin that prevents us from applying this is that we focus on the wrong legacy often. Especially as we reach our midlife, some of you are younger, you haven't even thought about your legacy. But there will come a point in your life when you will think, what legacy am I leaving? And the question is, what legacy will you focus on? Will you make choices that will get you sidetracked? Will you make choices that will end up in you being maligned? Because the legacy you're focusing on is not yours, but the legacy of Christ. Or will you make choices that just promote your own legacy, that make you bigger, that make you more important? It's a temptation we face. When you're younger, you may not feel it, but the day will come that you do. So the the sin that we want to avoid is just focusing on the wrong legacy. We focus on the legacy of who Christ is. All right, let's just take a a moment here uh, and pray. And after I pray, I'll lead us into a few (coughs) comments on communion. Uh, Just know that we're now doing communion uh, at stations in the back. So you can just walk to those stations and pick up your communion as you're ready. We have communion up here that Bruce is going to serve because you don't want me to cough on your communion before you take it. So Bruce is going to serve this one back here. So let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do equip us to suffer well. Uh, God, we just confess that there are times that we do not. We're thankful for the gospel that you continue to bring us back in to teach us to send us out so that we glorify you. Jesus, I pray that your word would sink into us, that your words would remain in us, and that we would be transformed. We ask this, Christ, in your good name. Amen. Okay, if everybody would stand with me. Church, each week we have this opportunity to reflect and respond. We don't do an altar call. We say that often. We have an opportunity to respond, all of us, to the gospel. If we think about what Peter is teaching us, we have this opportunity to arm ourselves once again, to arm ourselves with the truth of the gospel. We go to the one who suffered for us and confess our great need for him. When we take the bread and the juice, we are confessing we need a savior. We need the life of another to save us and to forgive us. If we come to the table this morning, having stood the test, it ceased from sin this week. If you're like, yes, I suffered well, I chose Christ, I ceased from sin, then when you come to the table, you get to give all credit to Jesus. 
If you come to the table this morning and it's a time of confession, you realize you failed the test of suffering, then you go, I need your blood and your body knowing that I cannot do this on my own. We come to the table of confession knowing that we need his sacrifice to cover us. We need his life to renew us. If you need time to confess, do that. Take the time and then take communion. Communion is open to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's a time for us to reflect and to go to him, to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ Jesus. In Mark's gospel, it says this, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As you're ready, church, go ahead and take communion.